Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer at HowStuffWorks.com, and today we're going to revisit the world of MP3s. Because I promised you guys I'd do an episode about the history of MP3 players, and this is that episode. I've already covered the history of the MP3 format itself and how digital audio works, so you can check out those earlier episodes as well if you want to. Uh, but first, let me just give like kind of a very brief overview of the history of the MP3, super summarized version. Uh, if you recall, it originated as a project out of a research company called uh, the Fraunhofer Gesellschaft Company. A team of researchers led by Karl Heinz Brandenburg created the MP3 format back in 1987. Now, what he was doing was trying to build a compression formula that would allow for high audio quality that doesn't take up as much space as raw audio files do. Uh, they, they, those are huge. So how do you get them smaller so that transmission is easier? He wanted to do this for audio transmission across phone lines. Now, the name MP3 comes to us courtesy of the Motion Picture Experts Group, also known as MPEG. And the reason the 3 is there is because the full name for the format is the MPEG Audio Layer 3. So, Brandenburg's team's research led to this audio compression format. Now, Fraunhofer Gesellschaft applied for a patent in Germany in 1989 and for a patent in the United States uh, in 1996, and uh, this is a good spot to include a bit of information to clear up some ambiguity. An MP3 player can be a couple of different things. One version of an MP3 player is just a program that you run on your computer, and it's meant to decode compressed MP3 files and then play them back so that you can listen to them. Now, the other meaning of MP3 player is really what I was going to talk about today. That's a dedicated typically portable device that is a decoder and an audio system all in one. Kind of like a Sony Walkman was the old cassette player. I think of MP3 player as this handheld personal audio device, but technically MP3 player can refer to either. And since it can refer to either, I'm going to cover the history of both, but I'm really going to focus more on those handheld devices. Now, Fraunhofer Gesellschaft, and I do love saying that name over and over, which is why I take every opportunity to do so, they marketed an MP3 player program for computers, but it failed to catch on. It wasn't terribly user-friendly, people didn't really care for it, and the MP3 was actually in danger of fading into obscurity. If no one had created a user-friendly MP3 program... Chances are that format never would have caught on and we would have some other compression format that would be the standard, uh, or at least a major standard in audio compression. Now, there were other researchers and companies working on a way to find success where the German company found frustration, and that's when we flash forward to 1997. So remember, 1987 is when the company first started developing the MP3 compression format. Ten years later is when Tomislav Uzalak created the AMP MP3 playback em, uh, engine. Now, Uzalak was born in Croatia and studied at the University of Zagreb's Faculty of Electrical Engineering and Computing, and he had graduated with a degree of engineering. And he developed his MP3 player software when he was a student. And he wanted to launch it as a commercial product. He said, all right, well, I've created this thing that can play MP3 files. And I want to be able to make this something like a, a piece of software that I could actually sell. So he formed a partnership with an American entrepreneur named Brian Littman. Together, they created a new company called Advanced Multimedia Products. This was back in the time when multimedia became like the catchphrase. It was a buzz term, kind of similar to like the way we call Internet of Things or cloud computing. Those are real buzz terms today. Multimedia back in those days was the big buzz word. And uh, it also could mean things like full motion video in computer games. And I've talked about that in a previous episode. They were terrible and amazing and terrible. 
So Advanced Multimedia Products, that's where you get the AMP in AMP MP3. It wasn't AMP like an amplifier, but rather an acronym for Advanced Multimedia Products. Side note, Uzlak would later go on to work in the world of video games. He co-created a company called 2x2 Games, which released a turn-based war game called Unity of Command. So if you've ever played Unity of Command, that was made by the same person who created the first commercially successful MP3 player program. So this program hits the market, and it is commercially successful, but it's not entirely easy to use for everybody. That's when a University of Utah student named Justin Frankel took this AMP program and he ported it over to the Windows operating system, along with help from a few other developers. And he called this port WinAMP, W-I-N-A-M-P. Uh, Justin Frankel, by the way, would actually go on to develop the Nutella peer-to-peer sharing program. And Nutella, in this case, is spelled with a G-N-U, Gnutella. There's some disagreement online, by the way. Regarding to who contributed to creating WinAmp and who was ultimately responsible, who did most of the work, but I'm going to be honest with you guys, I cannot sort it all out. There are multiple stories out there. They all disagree with each other. Some of them seem to be a little more conspiracy-oriented than others. It's very difficult to sort out what is the actual truth. It seems to me like there were multiple players involved, and there's disagreement about who did most of the work. So, for the purposes of this podcast, let's say that Frankel developed Winamp and just put a little asterisk behind that phrase. Because, honestly, without chatting with all the parties involved, I can't really make a an educated guess as to who, whom was the ultimate uh, party responsible. I'm guessing it was more of a group effort. Now, Winamp would actually go on to become one of the top MP3 playback programs on the Windows platform. In 1998, it was a free program. Anyone could download it, and that really helped cement the MP3 format. It helped establish it as a format that would stick around, because now you had a free program you could use, You had a compression formula that allowed you to store a lot more music in the same storage space as if you were to use the the raw music files. You could, you could store way more music with MP3 format because it compressed it so low. Or so low as in uh, low storage space. And of course that depended upon things like the bit rate you set your uh, encoding at. And if you want to learn more about that, you can listen to the digital audio episode I did to talk more about bitrate. I'm not going to go into that here. So the MP3 format was no longer in danger of fading off into obscurity. In 1999, one year after Winamp became free, AOL purchased the rights to Winamp. They actually acquired a company called Nullsoft. That was the company that Frankel had formed when he was marketing Winamp. And the price for acquiring Nullsoft was a cool $80 million. Not bad for a University of Utah dropout. Frankel dropped out of the, out of college once he had developed this program because he was running his own company. He had, he had created a startup and, uh, found enormous success by getting acquired uh, by AOL. This uh, was just one example of a long and storied history of people creating companies that showed some utility and then selling out to a larger company. And by selling out, I don't mean they sold out in the you know derogatory sense. They made really good business decisions by making millions of dollars off of their work. Uh, I only wish I had come up with something equally as useful so that I could be a millionaire. Gosh darn it. But don't we all? Anyway, it was uh, not long for this world, ultimately. Because in 2013, AOL shut down Winamp. Uh, You couldn't download it anymore. They stopped supporting it. But of course, by 2013, the MP3 format was firmly entrenched. So the death of Winamp did not mean the death of the MP3. 
And there are tons of other MP3 player programs and MP3 compatible programs out there. Way more than I can name. Uh, Some of them have really interesting features. Some of them are really slimmed down programs that just have basic commands. Most operating systems have some form of MP3 playback functionality built into them with a stock application, so you don't even have to download anything to be able to access MP3 files for most cases. So instead of focusing on the software side, let's shift over to talk about portable MP3 players. When did they start to show up? So while Uzlak was working on the AMP MP3 player program, and thank goodness I'm not going to have to say that anymore, there was a company in South Korea that was busy creating the first solid-state handheld MP3 player. Now that company was the Sehan Information Systems Corporation. The original product they launched was called the MP Man Digital Stereo Player. Kind of like a Walkman, but it's an MP Man. And of course, Walkman came from Sony. This came from Sehan Information Systems. Now, the company wasn't prepared to market this worldwide, so they actually partnered with another company, Iger Labs, and Iger Labs was in charge of marketing this product over in the Western world, and they showed off the device at the 1998 CBIT trade show in Germany. The product would then hit the consumer market in the summer of 1998. So... You have the software side developing at the same time as the hardware side, which was kind of interesting, right? Now, there were two versions of the early MP Man MP3 player. Others would follow after a while, but the first two were pretty simple. One of them had 32 megabytes of memory, which was enough to hold about 32 minutes of audio encoded at 128 kilobits per second. Uh, that's about eight standard-length songs. Uh, obviously, standard length is, you know, that depends, but you're, we're talking three to four minutes, right? So just for fun, out of the mischievousness of my heart, I decided to ask eight coworkers a simple question. If you could fit one and only one song on an MP3 player for your use, what would it be? And uh, so here is the How Stuff Works employee playlist as determined by the eight coworkers I asked. Uh, I asked a couple of others this question later on and tortured them as well. By the way, across the board, when I asked this question, it was clear to me that the people responding were giving more thought to this question than perhaps any other piece of work that crossed their desk this week. That's not a judgment. I'm just making an observation. So coworker Allison said that she would put, put uh, Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie on this MP3 player. Christopher went with Adore by Prince, although he has since reconsidered his choice multiple times. Nathan chose Lateralis by Tool. Uh, Sherry chose Telephone Call from Istanbul by Tom Waits. Ramsey, who uh, is the director for the Forward Thinking series now, his choice was Waiting Room by Fugazi. Our office manager, Tamika, said she would go with The Imperial March by John Williams from the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack. I think she wins. Uh, Julie, who hosts Stuff of Life, among other things, went with Nina Simone's Sinner Man, uh, specifically a live version. She wanted me to make sure I mentioned that. And then we have Matt Frederick, one of the hosts of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, who decided to torture me because he chose a song that I don't think I can pronounce, Svefan Inglar by a group called Sigur Ros. And I know I butchered it, and I know that that wasn't necessarily Matt's intent, but I also know that Matt is probably not disappointed to hear that I cannot say the name of the song he chose. Now, I think it's only fair that I do the same as my coworkers, but I'm giving myself all eight tracks. So here are eight songs I feel like I could put on an MP3 player that could only hold those eight songs. Uh, first up is Tie Your Mother Down by Queen, because it's a song that was written in 1976 by Brian May, and May went on to become an astrophysicist. So if an astrophysicist can write an amazing song called Tie Your Mother Down, I think you have to include it on your MP3 player. Next, I've got Sabotage by the Beastie Boys, 
which I, I think is best played in a car that has all the windows rolled down. Third is my one and only entry from They Might Be Giants. Uh, this one would be Can't Keep Johnny Down. Because, you know, it's my name's Jonathan, so I went with that. Anyone who knows me is aware that I'm an enormous fan of They Might Be Giants. So picking any one song from them was really tough. Fourth would be The Clash's cover of Pressure Drop, which was originally by Toots and the Maytals, uh, which was one of my favorite cover songs. And then next I've, I've chosen This Must Be The Place by The Talking Heads. Uh, then we would have a song from a more recent band that I've become obsessed with. That would be The Struts and Put Your Money On Me. After that, SOB by Nathaniel Rateliff and The Night Sweats. And the last song I would put on my MP3 player would have to be something that would indicate my love of musicals. So I picked the song Once in a While from the Rocky Horror Show. Not the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but the play, the Rocky Horror Show, and specifically the Roxy cast version. So look up the different songs I mentioned, both the ones that my coworkers picked and the ones I picked, to kind of get your idea of why anyone would want to put that on an MP3 player that could only hold eight songs. It'll give you a lot more information about the personalities of the people who work here and of me. I guess that's also a warning. Now, I did say that the MP Man was available in two versions. The second one actually had 64 megabytes of storage. That's double the amount of data you could stuff onto the other version. It did not have a rechargeable battery, though. The 32 megabyte had a, a nickel metal hydride battery that you could uh, recharge and had nine hours of playtime, which is pretty incredible, right? Like nine hours to play eight songs over and over again. Well, the 64 megabyte, instead of having that rechargeable battery, it, it ran off a single AA battery. Now, technically, the AA could be rechargeable, depending upon what brand you purchased, but you get what I mean. It wasn't inherently a rechargeable battery. The original player, the 32 megabyte version, it didn't have expandable memory. So if you wanted to upgrade, you had to do this. You purchase your 32 megabyte, you decide, you know what, eight songs isn't enough. I'd really like to have 16 on there. You would send your 32 megabyte model and a check to cover the difference in cost off to Iger Labs, and they would send you a 64 megabyte version in return. That's how you upgraded. Didn't have anything to do with removable storage disks or anything like that. So how much did these things cost? Well, the 32 megabyte MP Man cost a cool $250 when it launched in 1998. If you were to take that same product and look at inflation, you could say, all right, well, today that means it would cost close to $368. So you would be spending almost $370 in order to listen to eight songs on the go in digital format. And, of course, that also depends upon the song length, right? If you wanted to store songs by the Ramones on there, you'd probably be able to squeeze in an extra tune because most Ramones songs are three minutes or, or shorter. But if you're a big fan of the musical genius known as Meatloaf, you might only get a couple of tracks on your MP3 player before you filled up all the memory. Now, I've got more to say about the MP Man and the more successful MP3 player that followed it. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. of the MP Man wasn't an enormous success, but it did help establish the MP3 as not just a digital compression format, but also a file type that could be used for portable devices. So in September 1998, just a couple of months after the MP Man launched, a new MP3 player emerged, and this was the Rio PMP300. And that debuted at a price of $200, which then prompted Iger Labs to reduce the MP Man price to $200 as well. The PMP300 also had 32 megabytes of storage space, and you'd load music from a computer using a parallel port cable. Do you remember those? They were kind of the, the things we would use before stuff like USB cables became a standard. So how did this... PMP300 measure up to the MP man, apart from the identical amount of storage space. Well, if you look at an MP man, and I do recommend that you 
search for these different devices and look at images just so you can see what these actually look like. Um, the MP Man had a very small digital display, almost like a uh, an electronic calculator, like handheld electronic calculator that you would have basic one, not even a scientific model. And uh, so it had a very small digital display that mostly showed how much time had passed from the launch of a song. And it had two physical buttons that you could use to navigate the device, uh, one called Mode and the other called Info. And it weighed about 65 grams. The PMP300 had a larger digital screen than the MP Man, and it also had more buttons, including three on the top edge of the player and several more on the front surface of the player, beneath where the screen was. Uh, a circle in the front gave basic controls like play, fast forward, rewind, and stop. And other buttons allowed you to do things like change the volume level or select basic functions like repeat. These would be things that would become standard in future MP3 players. Uh, the additional features and lower price point push the Rio ahead of the MP man. Now, that's not to say that the launch of the Rio was perfectly smooth. In October 1998... The Recording Industry Association of America, a.k.a. the RIAA, sued RioPort, which was a subsidiary of a company called Diamond Multimedia. And Diamond Multimedia essentially uh, produced the Rio through RioPort. So what was the beef? Well, the RIAA claimed that the Rio violated the 1992 U.S. Home Recordings Act. The MP Man was such a niche item that the RIAA didn't even take notice of it, but the Rio was making a bigger splash, and so the RIAA said, we've got to nip this in the bud. Anyone familiar with media organizations knows that this is a pretty common occurrence. So you get a new technology that debuts, and it allows people to create, play, and share recordings of media, and then lawsuits come flying in. We saw it with the development of, uh, of video cassettes, both Betamax and VHS, we saw it with just cassette tapes. We saw it with CDs, and specifically writable CDs. And we saw it with MP3s. No big shock. Every time that someone comes up with a new way to do this, we see the various industry uh, components react normally through lawsuits. And on the one hand, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. If someone can replicate a recording or make it available for other folks to download for free, why would anyone bother to pay for a recording, right? So why would I bother to pay for a song if I could just go online and download it for free and, you know, there's no repercussions there? But on the other hand, we've seen multiple times that the legal tactics don't prevent piracy from happening, and in some cases, lawsuits might encourage people who otherwise wouldn't dream of pirating stuff to actually go to the dark side and do it, saying, saying you know, I wasn't going to do it before, but because of the way this company is acting, I'm totally going to do it now. Maybe they're just justifying what their activity is, but it's not a great story. And it also leads to companies adopting various types of digital rights management, or DRM, that can ultimately cause more frustration to legal customers than to people pirating that software or files. More on that in a little bit. So for about a week and a half in October 1998, the RIAA was able to secure a sales ban on the Rio. So about 10 days or so, the Rio could not be sold legally in the United States. But by October 26th, that ban was lifted. RioPort would countersue the RIAA in December 1998 and said that what that organization was doing was illegal. They were trying to stifle a market that they didn't actually control, and that market would be digital music. There was a lawsuit that followed, and the court ruled that the Rio wasn't in violation of any rules, because the company couldn't control the behavior of its customers. In other words, it's not an MP3 player manufacturer's fault if customers fill up their devices with stolen files. They can't control that. It's the same as saying it's not a computer manufacturer's fault if a hacker uses their computers to make malware. Dell can't control if I take a Dell computer and start creating malware off of it. So Dell should not be held at fault if I unleash a damaging malware onto the world. By the same token, 
an MP3 player manufacturer can't guarantee that its customers are going to play by the rules, and it can't be held responsible when they don't. The RIAA appealed this verdict, and then the court said that the Rio didn't qualify as a recording device under the definitions of the Recording Act. So, therefore, it couldn't be in violation of any rules because it didn't qualify for the rules that RIAA said were in play. So the MP3 player lived to fight another day. On a side note, the RIAA would soon see its fears realized upon the birth of peer-to-peer sharing services, namely Napster. These services became massive resources for pirates, first of music files and then later for all types of files. Now, the technology itself in peer-to-peer sharing isn't illegal, but it was put to illegal use frequently enough that everyone in the industry was equating this perfectly legal means of distribution with illegal activity. It became an enormous headache for a lot of people who used peer-to-peer sharing for totally legitimate legal purposes. Uh, it didn't help that there were also lots of people using it to pirate the crap out of music, movies, and games, and other types of files. Uh, this would also extend into the era of the BitTorrent networks. So I've talked about those in previous episodes. I won't dwell on it here. Those lawsuits, however, got the attention of the industry at large, and nobody wanted to get sued by a powerful organization representing the interests of the major music labels. They had almost bottomless amounts of cash and could completely bankrupt smaller companies that were trying to get into this industry. So various entities in the technology sector, including consumer electronics companies and various rights holders, formed what was called the Secure Digital Music Initiative, or SDMI. Their goal originally was to create a strategy, some encryption specifications and other strategies to prevent the unlawful distribution of MP3 recordings. So in other words, they wanted to create a digital rights management strategy. To do this, they created a digital watermarking process that would attach a bit of code to a music file, and that bit of code would act as a watermark. If you tried to remove the watermark, it would, in theory, cause damage to the MP3 file so that you would get signal loss, uh, you would have a, a lower quality sound file, or maybe it wouldn't even play properly at all. And they also worked to create a standard for MP3 players. So the idea was that MP3 player manufacturers would implement technology, some kind of code, hard-coded into the device, that would prevent an SDMI-compliant player from playing an SDMI-compliant music file if it didn't have authorization to do so. So in other words, think of it like a key in a lock. If the key was not present on the device, it could not unlock a music file that had been illegally loaded onto the device. And to make sure that their plan worked, the SDMI group invited various hackers to try their hand at removing that digital watermark without harming the MP3 file. So there was a group led by a Princeton University professor of computer science, and his name was uh, Ed Felton. They claimed that they managed the task. Now, the SDMI group said, no, 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 no. Yeah, you, you didn't do it because uh, just because our software says that the watermark is gone doesn't mean the watermark is really gone. Plus, there's signal loss here in this audio file, so you didn't really successfully do this. Now, Felton's group did not opt for the non-disclosure policy. The group had offered a prize, a cash prize award to anyone who could manage to do this. If you opted out of that non-disclosure policy, you were not eligible for the award. Well, Felton's group never agreed to the non-disclosure part. So they moved to publish their method to defeat the SDMI um, uh, DRM strategy. And that's when several groups, including the RIAA, sprung into action. They threatened legal action under the Digital Management Copyright Act, or DMCA. Felton turned to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, and said, hey, now this is not fair. So they took it to the U.S. Department of Justice, and the DOJ said, you're cool, Felton, because legit academic research isn't a violation of the DMCA. So the paper was published. The SDMI essentially dissolved without any fanfare in 2001. Turns out that protecting digital information is pretty tricky, and this approach was ultimately a failure. It's probably a good thing, seeing as how those approaches to DRM tend to do more 
harm. They 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 negatively affect legitimate legal customers more than they affect the people who are skirting around the law. And trust me, nothing is more frustrating than the feeling you're being punished for following the rules. Anyone who's played a single-player video game that will only work if you have an active uh, connection to the Internet probably knows what I'm talking about. All right, back to the MP3 players. After the launch of the MP Man and the Rio, other devices began to hit the market, and the biggest challenge companies faced was to provide a decent amount of memory storage while trying to keep the price down. Because in those early days, if you wanted to use solid-state flash-based memory storage, you were paying a pretty hefty price. We're talking between 3 and $4 per megabyte, which adds up to about $3,500 per gigabyte. That's, that's an enormous amount of money. I don't have $3,500 to spend on a 1-gigabyte MP3 player. I don't have it to spend on a terabyte MP3 player, to tell you the truth. Now, in 1999... A new MP3 player debuted with a much larger hard drive than its competitors, and this was the Remote Solutions Personal Jukebox, and it had 4.8 gigabytes of storage. How? How could Remote Solutions Personal Jukebox have 4.8 gigabytes when everyone else is struggling with 32 or 64 megabytes? Did it cost the same amount as a car? No. And the reason was Personal Jukebox wasn't using solid-state flash memory. Instead, the Personal Jukebox actually was using a repurposed laptop hard drive. In other words, it used a disk-based storage system. Hard disk, not floppy disk. And it used magnetic storage instead of the solid-state model. Now, that kept the price down, but it was still monstrously expensive. The launch price for the personal jukebox was $799, which is about the same as $1,151 in today's money. And you might think that a laptop hard drive would make an MP3 player larger and heavier than those that use flash storage. And you're right. It was not really a, a portable device, at least not in the same way that the flash-based ones were. In 2000, another disc-based hard drive MP3 player debuted, and this one was the Creative Nomad Jukebox. It cost $500 for 6 gigabytes of storage, so more storage for less money. But like the personal jukebox, it was a hefty monster. It was too big for a personal listening device. It kind of looked like a um, personal CD player rather than an MP3 player, much too large to fit into a pocket. If you wanted to go lightweight, you would have to opt for something else, like the i2go Ego, which had a micro drive capable of storing two gigabytes of music. But there was a hefty price tag for the i2go Ego. It cost $2,000. A $2,000 MP3 player. And that's by 2000 year standards, like the year 2000. If you wanted to adjust for inflation, it's more like $2,787 for a 2 gigabyte MP3 player. It's not even made out of platinum or anything. Other alternatives were also popping up, though most of them had those storage limitations. Uh, there was the RCA Lyra, or Lyra if you prefer. It's L-Y-R-A. And that marked RCA's attempt to get into the MP3 player business. Uh, the first model had a 32 megabyte capacity on a CF card, and it also had a fairly large monochromatic display and several physical buttons for operation. If you wanted to store music on the device, you had to use proprietary software to write to the CF reader. Moreover, the files you'd store would be converted into an encrypted format that would only play on the Lyra, or Lyra, or whatever. Now, because it actually used a removable memory card, you could upgrade the memory. You just buy a higher memory card. Now, the max in those early models was 512 megabytes. So still way less than those hard disk style MP3 players, but far more storage than the standard models that were on the market. And it kept the size of the device relatively small. One drawback was that when the Lyra booted up, it had to read the full contents stored on the card. Kind of like how your computer, when it's booting up and it's trying to load the desktop, it has to read all the different things that are associated with the desktop before it can fully load. So the only way it could present a menu of all the songs stored on the device was to go through all the contents first. 
Now, the more you stored on it, the longer that boot time lasted. If you had more than half of your device full and you had 512 megabytes of storage, you'd be waiting longer than a minute just for the thing to boot up properly. So it wasn't the most convenient compared to some other devices. Now, that entire line of RCA products would persist and evolve with later models adding more functionality and more storage. Meanwhile, in 2000, Sony joined the game by launching a device that sort of looked like a pen. It was called the Sony Vio MCP-10 Music Clip. And boy, doesn't that just roll off the tongue. I love these uh, MP3 players that all have letter and number designations instead of just a quippy name that I can rattle off. Sony Vio MCP-10 Music Clip. We'll just call it the Music Clip from here on out. It was a 64 megabyte digital music player, so their entry level was a little higher than the previous models that had come out over the last couple of years. It cost $300. And here's another big difference. Unlike the other players I've talked about, this wasn't actually an MP3 player. It didn't play MP3 files at all. Why? Because in a very Sony fashion... It would play music files in the A-Track 3 format. That's A-T-R-A-C 3 format. That's a format that was created by, drumroll, Sony. So you could in use included software to transcode files from MP3 to A-Track 3, but the whole process took a really long time. It was very clunky. And they paired it with a poorly designed program designed to move files from a computer to the player. Right? You would still download files onto your PC or rip music from a CD onto your PC. Then you would have to transfer from the PC to your MP3 player. In this case, you would also have to transcode it to A-Track 3 if it wasn't already in that format. It was a very frustrating experience, and it... Uh, a lot of customers were upset that it wasn't really an MP3 player, despite the fact that MP3 would appear on the box because of that transcoding program. I mean, the transcoding program was included, so why not in, say MP3 on the box? Uh, ultimately, the the device did not get a lot of traction. Uh, it did not do very well in the marketplace. Also, that same year in 2000, iOmega, which created zip disks, launched an MP3 player called the HipZip. And it had a 40 megabyte storage capacity and used a scaled down version of the magnetic disk storage that they used for zip disks. But at this point, the market was starting to get a bit crowded. There was some confusion going on in the marketplace. A lot of companies were launching MP3 players at different storage capacities for different prices. And the experience could be remarkably different depending upon which device you chose and which software package came along with it so that you can manage your music database and load up your device. Keep in mind, this is a time where these devices didn't have Wi-Fi connectivity. You had to physically attach them to a computer in order to move music over onto them. Customers were starting to get a bit frustrated because it was a confusing time. And it turned out that having a bigger storage drive wasn't necessarily the killer feature because some products were just too frustrating to use. It didn't matter that you could store more music on them. The the process of getting music moved to the device was so irritating that a lot of people just didn't like them. But in 2001, a product launched that changed the game completely. Now, before I talk about that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, I mentioned before the break that we had a groundbreaking product launch in 2001. I am, of course, talking about the Intel Pocket Concert. It's like, I meant the iPod. But the Intel Pocket Concert did launch in 2001, and it was pretty cool. It had 128 megabytes of storage. It cost $300. This amount of storage and that price point was really attractive. It actually met with some success in the market, but... It didn't last very long, not because of problems with the device, not because people didn't like it, but because Intel reorganized in 2001. And in that reorg, they shut down their home electronics division. And the Pocket Concert fell into the home electronics category. So it was a casualty of a reorg. It didn't have anything to do with the market acceptance of the MP3 player. Just think, if Intel had kept it, maybe the story would be very different. No, the, the one that actually launched in 2001 that changed everything 
was the iPod. Now, it didn't change everything right away when it first launched. It was too limited to do that. Uh, Apple was not the powerhouse in 2001 that it, it would become just a few years later. It was still recovering from a very tumultuous period in the company history. It had gone through a lot of turbulence in the 90s. Co-founder Steve Jobs had returned to Apple in 1997 after essentially being exiled for several years. If you remember, Steve Jobs was kind of forced out of Apple, effectively forced. He was essentially put to the side until he stepped away because he wasn't in charge of anything anymore. Then Apple was on the verge of bankruptcy after a series of terrible business decisions and, and strategies. And Jobs came back in as an interim CEO until he was starting to turn the company around and became the actual CEO. And he was working really hard to make the company healthy again. And the 2001 launch of the iPod was one of the first really big moves Apple made to assert itself and become a leader in computing and electronics markets. So the very first generation of iPods had a large LED screen. They had the classic scroll wheel. You'd put your thumb on the wheel and spin it around in order to navigate the various uh, lists of songs. A scroll wheel in that first generation was surrounded by the control buttons like play and pause and rewind and fast forward. And so the device had a pretty simple and fairly aesthetic design, kind of clunky compared to today's technology, but less clunky than a lot of the competitors that were out there. It also had five gigabytes of storage space, and it cost $400 when it launched. Also, it was aimed at a niche market, because the only compatible computer you could use with a first-generation iPod was a Mac. It wasn't compatible with Windows-based PCs, just Macs. The original iPods were... Uh, running, uh, they were rather compatible with Macs that were running a brand new software package called iTunes. Now, at that time, iTunes was just a management software, right? It was meant to help you manage your, your music files, but you had to get the music files from somewhere else at that point. Now, because of those limitations, the iPod didn't immediately dominate the MP3 player space. What's more, other companies were starting to introduce innovations in devices, and that was in an effort to set them apart from all the other competitors out there. In 2002, Arcos began to market a product called the Jukebox Multimedia. A lot of jukeboxes in here. Anyway, the Jukebox Multimedia could play audio and video, as the name would suggest. And they had two different versions. They had a 10 gigabyte and a 20 gigabyte version. The basic 10 gigabyte uh, version went on sale for $400. So same price as the first generation iPod. But this one could show video and it had more storage space. Creative Labs uh, would launch an MP3 player called the Muvo, M-U-V-O, which was a small, simple MP3 player that used a single AAA battery and had a battery life of 12 hours, which was pretty impressive. And that came in uh, both 64 megabyte and 128 megabyte options. It was less expensive than a lot of the other players, and it was fairly popular at the time because people were starting to really get into this idea of the MP3. A year later, other gadgets started to join the list, including Sony's next attempt at getting into the MP3 game. It was a another catchy model, the NW-MS70D. Rolls off the tongue. I, I could just imagine kids writing to Santa. Dear Santa, please get me the NW-MS70D. And then they'd probably end up with some completely unrelated electronic device because the parents couldn't read the... Word. I'm sorry, Santa couldn't read the words properly and then ended up buying, I don't know, a hairdryer or something. By the way, that device looks really weird. You want to look up an image of this. So one more time for those of you who want to look up the image, the NWMS70D, because I don't think I can really describe it properly. So here here goes. This is just a a wild attempt, but I don't really think it's going to help you that much. Imagine something that looks like an old-fashioned electric razor. And then imagine a cylinder protruding from either side of one end of that electric razor. And then you have that MP3 player from Sony. And it was actually a pretty small player. So the it had a weird shape, but it really wasn't that big. It could hold 256 megabytes of music, 
Plus, it had an additional 128 megabytes storage thanks to a memory card. This one launched at $300, and I actually kind of dig the design of this one. It used flash-based memory, and so a lot of people liked this one specifically if they wanted to do exercise, because flash-based memory, you don't have to worry about skipping. With any physical hard drive, like a magnetic storage drive, you've actually got a physical disk that spins, and if you jostle it around, it can cause the device to skip. So... Those early MP3 players, a lot of them, the ones that had those uh, disk drive-based storage systems, they weren't great if you wanted to go jogging or do heavy-duty exercise because they could skip around. These other flash-based ones didn't have that problem. Creative continued its push into the MP3 market by launching a line of MP3 players called Zen. And the Zen line could play not just MP3 files, but also WMA files, and some could also handle WAV files and later others as well, uh, types of files as well. Creative built management software called Creative Media Source, which allowed users to synchronize devices to music stored on a computer. That meant that, you know, if you added more music to your PC and then you hooked up your device to the PC, it would automatically pull over new songs into your device. You didn't have to do it manually. You didn't have to go in and say, all right, I want this one. You could do that, but you didn't have to. So if you added new music to your computer, it would automatically port it over to your uh, Zen every time you would plug it in. And my first MP3 player was a Creative Zen Touch. That actually launched in 2004. At the time, I chose the Creative Zen Touch. I don't think I got it in 2004. I think I got it later. So <laughs> I, got, I got it for less. It was a later model. And it was less expensive. But I chose that one because I owned a PC. I didn't own a Mac. And I could, at that time, get a version of iTunes for the PC. But iTunes for the PC in those days did not work very well. It was a kind of a monster on Windows. It was not a piece of software I particularly cared for back in those days. It worked much better on a Mac than it would on a PC. And as a result, I felt discouraged from using iTunes and decided to go with the Creative Zen Touch and use their media source software instead. Uh, now, the Zen Touch was a pretty solid brick of a device, but I liked the interface. It had a touch-sensitive vertical bar instead of a scroll wheel, and you'd use the vertical bar to scroll through your music selection. Uh, I held on to that thing for longer than I probably should have, just because I maintained that it was better to have a dedicated device to play music than to use my phone to play music. If you guys are longtime listeners of Tech Stuff and you listened way back in the day when Chris Paulette was co-host of Tech Stuff, you heard me talk about this, how I preferred having a dedicated device for my music so that I didn't have to gum up the memory on my phone to hold all my music collection. And these days I do what the majority of people out there are doing. I use streaming services to access music. I have some stuff downloaded to my phone, but mostly I'm streaming it. So now I don't have a dedicated music player. All right, but jumping back to 2003, Apple would continue with its iPod line. Uh, it launched a 15 gigabyte iPod. And then later on in 2003, it launched a 40 gigabyte iPod. But the biggest news was that iTunes graduated from a music management software program to a full-fledged music store interface. That meant that in 2003, you could purchase music through Apple and then transfer it to your handy-dandy iPod just directly. This was brilliant. You know, having your, your ability to shop, your ability to manage your playlist, and your ability to sync it with your device all in one software package. However, Apple was also implementing a digital rights management strategy, DRM, that really irritated consumers. Uh, the 40 gigabyte third generation iPod is the one that I always think about when I imagine an iPod. That's the, the vision I have in my head. They changed the, the controls slightly. So they still had the LED screen at the top. Beneath that, they put the control buttons arranged in a horizontal line below the LED screen. So they were no longer around the circumference of the scroll wheel. And below the control buttons was the, the scroll click wheel. Uh, this one launched at a $400 price point. By 2004, color screens started to become a feature in some of the high-end MP3 players. Uh, Creative launched the Zen Media Center. That one had a color screen and ran on the Windows mobile operating system. It could store 40 gigabytes of music and cost $500. Uh, 
Meanwhile, iRiver's H300 series packed a color screen and a much smaller form factor, and it also included an FM radio. So you could buy a 20-gigabyte iRiver H300 for $250. Apple followed suit by launching an iPod with a color screen and a 60-gigabyte storage capacity, costing $349. So now you've got lots of different players trying to get the edge by adding in these other features. But it was that music store that really gave Apple the edge. By pairing a store system with the management software for an iPod, Apple created a new way for consumers to buy music. And since Apple got a cut of the sales, it became an immensely profitable strategy for the company. It really propelled Apple into new heights. And Apple was also making a name for the quality of its products. People really liked the quality. They liked the experience, particularly if they owned a Mac. If you were like me and you owned a PC, you were still complaining about the fact that iTunes was not great on Windows. People began to trust the Apple brand more, and the iPod would start to make its mark in other ways as well, because the popular term for what I do is called podcasting. That owes a lot to the brand name iPod. Now, some folks prefer to use less branded terms like netcasts, and there's nothing wrong in that, but... I would argue podcast remains the popular generic term for what I do, and that's thanks to Apple for making the iPod and taking MP3 players mainstream. Now, Apple did that not just by concentrating on the iPod line, but also by launching other brands that catered to specific markets. So you had the iPod Shuffle, for example. This was a simplified, stripped-down MP3 player. It had no display. It automatically would shuffle playlists. Uh, it had basic controls that allowed you to skip or replay songs and adjust the volume. And that simplification meant that the shuffle could be sold for much less money than other MP3 players. And the standard one gigabyte model was priced at $150 in 2005. Other companies were still trying to get into the game. Dell launched the DJ Diddy in 2005, which had a small display, had an FM radio, and 512 megabytes of storage space, so it was lagging behind a lot of the other players. And by then, iPod was beginning to define the market, and newcomers were having a harder time gaining any traction. So by 2006, Dell would abandon the diddy diddy dum diddy do. In 2006, Microsoft tried to challenge Apple for that heavyweight championship in MP3 players, and they launched the Zune. Do you guys remember the Zune? Do you guys remember what they called sharing on the Zune, like if you had a song and someone else had a Zune and you could share one Zune song to another Zune. Do you remember Dylan? Dylan shaking his head. It was called squirting. If you wanted to squirt your song, Dylan is a, uh, let's say that there's some disbelief in Dylan's reaction, but no, that is in fact what they called it. It was a, a method of being able like say that I bought a song. I could share it temporarily with you, Dylan, if you had your Zune, just by squirting it right over to you. I just squirt that song, and then you'd be able to enjoy the squirted song on your Zune. Dylan's giving me a thumbs up, and he's, well, there's at least one finger pointing toward me. Um, yeah, so a lot of people made fun of that, and obviously it's, I'm still doing it today, despite the fact that the Zune is no longer a thing. Spoiler alert. Um, but, you know, the Zune was an impressive attempt to challenge the iPod in many ways. It just, it, it came a little too late for it to really have a, a, a chance. It had a color LCD display and that display was gorgeous. I would argue that the original Zune, when it came out, its display was better than what Apple's iPod line had at that time. Uh, it also had an FM radio and 30 gigabytes of storage with the first model. And like I said, Subsequent models would have these other features. Microsoft would pair this with a subscription-based service through the Zune store. So the Zune store was kind of like the iTunes store, but they had a different strategy. They said, here's what we want you to do. You'll pay a subscription fee of $15 a month. And for $15 a month, you get all the music you can download. Now, that actually sounds fairly reasonable today. A lot of streaming music services depend upon... Uh, a subscription base, right? You might not pay the subscription base, but then you're getting lots of ads instead of just uh, an ad-free experience. But then if you if you opt in to a subscription service, then you don't have ads. Well, imagine this. Imagine that you pay $15 a month, but you can download as much music as you like. 
putting aside things like data caps, which obviously and and broadband speeds, which obviously makes an impact on how much you can take advantage of this. This is the sort of thing I would jump on in a second today because you wouldn't just have access to music. You would actually get to download those tracks, which means if the service ever were to go belly up, you could still listen to your favorite tunes, right? Like if the service goes away and the service was how you were listening to music, you have to find a different service that may or may not have access to the same labels that you were used to. This would be a way for you to actually hold on to those music files and be able to listen to them even if the infrastructure went away. But the whole idea came a little bit too early, I think, and Microsoft's attempts to market the Zoom never really captured a large section of the market. In 2007, Apple introduced two products that changed the game again. First was the iPod Touch, which moved nearly all the controls for the device onto a touchscreen interface, which meant that most of the face of the gadget was a screen, and it allowed for really impressive video playback capabilities. The base model was 16 gigabytes, and it cost about $400. But they also introduced another product that really disrupted things, and that was the first iPhone. That came out in 2007. And Steve Jobs, when he introduced it, talked about the fact that it was a computer, a phone, and an MP3 player all in one. It had the capability of acting as an MP3 player, and it really spelled doom for a lot of standalone MP3 devices. As smartphones became more popular and started to have larger amounts of storage and the price wasn't ridiculously expensive or was sometimes uh, supplemented depending upon what uh, service provider you were using and where you lived, people started seeing fewer reasons to purchase a dedicated MP3 player. And the company that had dominated the the market stood poised to kill that market. But that market didn't totally die. There are still plenty of dedicated MP3 players out there. And there are a lot of reasons to buy one. You might want to pair an MP3 player with your car, for example, and just have it be like an enormous mixtape for road trips, and that way you don't have to wear down your phone's battery. Or you might want a simple MP3 player that you can wear while you're exercising, which removes the need to carry a bulky and expensive smartphone as you jog or hit the gym. But a lot of people are moving away from those dedicated devices and relying more heavily on their multi-purpose smartphones, so they act as a phone, a computer, and an MP3 player, among other things. Now, the MP3 player's history has a few more stories. I didn't mean to just end with the iPod Touch. That same year, Samsung launched the YP-P2 MP3 player. Yeah, another fantastic name. But this was a really pretty device. It had a touchscreen interface. came out the same year as the iPod Touch. A lot of people at the time thought it was a superior device to the iPod Touch. Not everybody, but a lot of people did. It had Bluetooth capabilities, which meant that you could pair it with a phone and you could even use it to answer calls that were coming in from the paired phone. Uh, we also saw in 2007 a smaller Zune and a third generation iPod Nano. Didn't really talk about the introduction of the Nano, but the Nano was yet another very small uh, uh, iPod or MP3 player meant for you know easy on-the-go Use And the iPod Nano that came out in the third generation also had a color video screen. So you could watch really tiny video on your Nano if you wanted to for some reason. In 2008, we saw the SanDisk Sansa Fuse debut, also the Sony E-Series Walkman. These were both devices that went a totally different route. They were aiming at the budget market for folks who were unwilling or unable to shell out the big bucks for something like an iPod Touch or even an iPod Classic, which was still around at that point. These cost about $75, much less expensive than these counterparts. On the other end of the spectrum were the iPod and Zoom models that included Wi-Fi connectivity, which turned them into something approaching a smartphone but without the cellular connectivity. This is kind of how it went for the following years uh, until uh, I think something else I should mention in the history of MP3 players, and that's the year 2014. That was the year that Apple quietly killed off the iPod Classic. The iPod Classic lasted 13 years, 2001 to 2014. But in 2014, you could not any longer buy the standalone MP3 player with that classic form from Apple. 
And as I said, there's still MP3 players out there. If you go to any store or you go on Amazon or anything like that and you do a search for it, you'll find tons of them. But they are a much smaller niche market, and they're generally aimed at things like the the exercise crowd or uh, stuff along those lines, as opposed to mm, people who are more used to using their devices just to stream music online. But I'm curious to hear from you guys. Did you own an MP3 player? And what was your first MP3 player? And also, what eight songs would you include on your MP man if you had one? You can let me know by sending me an email. You can just uh, use the address techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also give me a shout on Facebook or Twitter. The handle you can use is techstuffhsw. as the handle that you use to contact me. Not you use personally. You use your own handle. That's just the one I use for the show. Anyway, I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 